0: They're some of the most famous crime movies of all time and have left gangsters and their glamorous malls forever embedded in popular culture. Now Crime World is going to make you an offer you can't refuse. In association with Dingle Whiskey and the Sunday World magazine, we'll be recording an exclusive invite-only live show on December 1st in Dublin's Sugar Club. And for a chance to win tickets, all we want are your views and your votes. Over the coming weeks, we will be reviewing our top 10 iconic movies with some special guests as part of the Dingle Whiskey Movie Club on Crime World. And we want you to vote for your favourites to be in to win. Details on sundayworld.com and Crime World's Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And remember, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer.
1: When he thought about it, he thought he should get hold of the gun but there was a struggle for the gun. As they grappled for the gun, Stephen Silver managed to get his hand on the handle of it, and he describes then that the gun went off. This struggle continued, Garda Horkin fell to the ground, and Stephen Silver says that he then pulled away, he held the gun with both hands, and he shot Garda Horkin about ten times.
0: I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals... Drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The trial of Stephen Silver for the murder of Detective Garda Colum Horkan is continuing at the Central Criminal Court, where the motorbike mechanic has taken to the stand to give evidence in his own defence. Silver has pleaded not guilty to the murder of Garda Horkan, knowing or being reckless as to whether he was a member of Garda Síochána, but guilty to his manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. Today, I'm joined by courts reporter, Owen Reynolds, as we get up to date on the evidence heard in the ongoing trial. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So, Owen, we're entering day 19, week five, really, more importantly, in the murder trial of Stephen Silver. And since we last chatted, the accused has taken the stand.
1: Yes yeah, Stephen Silver took the somewhat unusual step of taking the stand in his own defense um, He was there for about two days both uh, between his direct evidence and cross examination by the prosecution and He gave a fairly detailed history of you know his first of all, his background, but also his psychiatric history. Um, and he and he also gave a description of the events leading up to and the actual shooting of Detective Gerda Horkin.
0: So what did he say about, for example, his psychiatric history? So he's had
1: 17 admissions to psychiatric units since 1997. And... Um, he said that 11 of these about 11 of these were involuntary and the others were voluntary sometimes they involved garda um, sometimes they in uh, involved uh, you know staff from the psychiatric unit having to commit him um, so he going into his own background then he grew up in Roscommon he left school after his junior cert um, he became a, a motorbike mechanic which is what he was doing right up until the time of his arrest. He, he, he had two diagnoses. He said um, one for schizoaffective disorder and for bipolar disorder. And those diagnoses seem to have shifted and changed over the years. Um, but one of the things that he mentioned was that despite all these 17 admissions to hospital, sometimes involuntary, sometimes voluntary, each time he went to hospital, he would be given medication. He would improve, his condition would improve. But when he left hospital... He would ignore the medical advice that he had been given, and he would stop taking his medication. And he said that then, over time, um, you know, he, he generally he would feel good. He said he felt better not taking the medication. He felt more active, he felt he had more energy, he was able to get things done, but he said that that would then gradually spiral until he became very hyper and then he would that would result in another uh, hospitalisation. Although there was a period between 2010 and 2018 of about seven to eight years where he actually didn't have any hospitalizations at all, but then um, in 2018 and 2019 he twice voluntarily went to psychiatric units. Um, in terms of his background then as well, he, he was married for 13 years now, at the time of the shooting of Detective Garda Hawkin, which was in the summer of 2020, he had split from his wife the previous February. He had moved into an apartment, but he said he couldn't afford the apartment, so he then moved into his shed, basically, where he was fixing his motorbikes. He, he sectioned off one corner of it, put in a little bed and a, a futon, he called it, and a, a couch and a little cooker and an oven and things like that just to make himself comfortable. But he said there was no running water. He would use a hose, Uh, that was outside he would fill a bottle with that and he would use that for washing himself he had an unplumbed sink in the shed and uh, that's the way he was living anyway at that time and he said he also wasn't getting a lot of sleep at that stage and uh This seems to have been a recurring theme with all of his or at least with most of his uh, admissions to psychiatric units was that one of the first early signs that things were going wrong or that he was becoming unwell would be that he'd stop sleeping or that he'd only get about three to four hours sleep a night. And that's what he said. That's what was happening to him in the weeks or days leading up to the shooting.
0: So what about the day of the shooting or the lead up to it? How much did he have to say or what did he say about that?
1: Yeah, it's good detail on that too. He, he was seeing this Australian woman who he had met in those, during those months uh, having split from his wife. Um, <clears throat> they spent a couple of days in Galway and then they went up to Dublin. She was due to fly out to Australia. But he said that this was when his uh, thoughts became confused, as he put it because he started believing that, or he had these fleeting thoughts that this woman was a member of MI6, that she was an MI6 spy. He said that he also believed that there were some English builders who were staying at the same hotel, and he thought that they were members of the SAS and that they were in communication with this woman that he'd been seeing. Um, So he described these as confused thoughts, but also that they were fleeting thoughts. He'd think them one minute, and the next minute he'd think everything was fine. Um, They... They didn't leave on particularly good terms. Uh, it seems that he, by the, the final night that they spent together on the 16th, um, they were sleeping in separate rooms in this hotel in Dublin. Uh, he said that she had become very angry with him. And, uh, but the following day, he offered to give her a lift at a hotel. She refused. He gave her 50 euros for a taxi. And then that was it. They, they, they went their separate ways. But he said as he was traveling home then on the motorway in his van, he said that he was feeling very elated, uh, very high. He was listening to Motorhead on the radio. He was feeling quite hyper. He also described that in over those days staying in the hotel, he had been. He knows now that he was getting hyper at that point. That he was talking. He'd become much more talkative than he ordinarily would. As he described, it, he was talking gibberish to people, it to the hotel receptionist or anyone else who he was who he came across. Um, <clears throat> He also said that before he left Dublin, he checked under his van because he thought maybe the members of the SAS had planted a bomb under there. Um, and there was uh, CCTV footage showing him getting down kind of in the press-up position and looking under his van and checking all the wheels of his van and so on.
0: So in the run-up to the, sort of, I suppose, the hours before the death of Colm Horkin, Detective Garda, what was he saying he was doing or who was he with?
1: So he drove back... From Dublin and decided to go through Castlereagh. And there he met an old friend, a man by the name of Derek Mannion. And uh, this man showed him a video on his mobile phone, which showed an, another mutual acquaintance of theirs, uh, an old friend of theirs named James Coyne. There had been a guard raid on his house a few weeks previously, and this video showed that guard raid. And so Stephen Silver, that seems to have occupied his mind somewhat from there on. He, he went to James Coyne's house. He says he wasn't. he's not really sure why he went to James Coyne's house. He hadn't seen him in about 13 years, but he went there. And they kind of embraced and uh, he looked around James Coyne's house. He said he felt sorry for him because he was living in what he called squalor. He said the the house was dilapidated, it was very dirty. Um, So they decided to get in Stephen Silver's van and head over to Foxford where Stephen had this uh, shed, the motorbike shed. So they did that on the way they stopped at the Garda station in Castlereagh. And Stephen Silver says that he wanted to go in there to tell them not to be um, not to be messing with James Coyne, not to be going after him. But uh, he says he doesn't actually remember what he said in there, but he does remember having a rant in the in the Garda station. So um, following that, then they went out to Foxford. Stephen Silver gave James Coyne a motorbike, a Kawasaki that he'd been working on for a couple of years. He said it was worth a couple of thousand euros. And he said he doesn't understand why he gave that uh, motorbike away and he he attributed again that to his illness at the time. He said he also gave away a helmet, some leather gear and some gloves that he reckoned was probably worth about another thousand euro. And he said at that time, he probably had two or three hundred euros in his bank account. So he couldn't, you know, he doesn't, looking back on it now, he doesn't understand why he did that, why he was being so generous. But anyway, he did all those things. They then put that motorbike in the back of Stephen Silver's van and they drove back to uh, Knock Row in Castle Ray, which is where James Coyne lived. Um. They then drove the motorcycle. Took the motorcycle out and they drove it around the estate. I think I spoke about this the last day. But we'll just go over it quickly. They drove around the estate at speed, uh, lights the no light on, there no helmets. Uh, Stephen Silver did a donuts, spinning the back wheel. He uh, they were shouting at one point. They were heard to shout. I or Stephen Silver was heard to shout. I dare the armed squad to come down here now. And um, all of this activity, anyway created a bit of a ruckus and it caused some of the neighbours to actually call Gardie. Um But, as we said the last time, by the time the Gardee actually arrived there, Stephen and James Coyne had left the bike and were on their way. They were walking down towards Castlereagh Town Centre, walking along Patrick Street towards Main Street at that stage.
0: Stephen Silver, in his own evidence, did he... Say that he said that about you know, dare the armed guards to come up here? Was that was that heard? Was that heard in another part of the trial, or did he admit that?
1: It was put to him by prosecution counsel Michael Delaney, and he accepted that he had said it. But he said again that this was another one of these fleeting thoughts that he had, and he said ten seconds later he would have no interest in the guardie. He denied very a number of times to Michael Delaney that he was trying to provoke the guardie into a confrontation. He said that that's not what he was trying to do. He said that this was just something that he was doing because he was unwell. And he said that is the only reason why he was doing these things or saying these things and driving in that erratic way.
0: So we're coming up to the point that he has an interaction with Colum Horkin, um, which the state have one uh, scenario for and the defence of another. So what has he got to say about that? So he said he was walking with James Coyne along
1: Patrick Street at the junction of Patrick Street and Main Street, and he said a dark-coloured car came up behind him. Um, He said that when he looked at the car, the passenger side window was down, and he could see a man, the driver of the car, was staring at him through the window. So he said he he leaned over to the window, and this man asked him who he was, and he gave his name. He said that that person, the person who was in the car, who he didn't recognise at the time, who obviously was, Garda Colin hawken He said that person then got out of the car and said at that moment as he was getting out, he said that he was a Garda. But Stephen Silver said that he noticed, first of all, the person was wearing a Tommy Hilfiger jacket. He said he thought that that was strange and he said that he didn't believe that this was a Garda. He said the per, uh, Garda Horkin then came around the front of the car towards him and squared up to him, got very close into his face as if he wanted to fight. Um, according to Stephen Silver's evidence, he then tried to distance himself from Gerda Hawken. He said he put his hands out and told him to keep two metres distance as per, you know, the COVID sort of uh, regulations or guidance. He, um, he said that then they, the Gerda Hawken grabbed his arms, tried to grab his arms, and so they began grappling. Uh, As they grappled, he said that James Coyne actually grabbed Stephen Silver from behind, maybe grabbed his jacket. He wasn't really sure, but he felt uh, James Coyne grab him from behind. And anyway, this caused Stephen Silver to fall to the ground as he put it. And he said as he was on the ground, he tried to reach up uh, to grab Gerda Horkin by the by the hip to try and pull himself up. And he said that was the moment when he put his hand on the holster of the gun. And he said that was the first time he realized there was a gun there. He said his immediate reaction actually was to pull his hand away. Uh, But then when he thought about it, he thought he should get hold of the gun But when he went to put his hand back on the gun, he said Garda Hawken's hand was already on the holster. And he said that he thought Garda Hawken must have opened the holster and taken the gun out. But there was a struggle for the gun. Now, he describes this as happening very quickly and he describes it as being very frightening. Um, But he managed, uh, as they grappled for the gun, Stephen Silver managed to get his hand on the handle of it um, while Garda Hawken had his hand over Stephen Silver's hand. Um, And he describes then that the gun went off. Uh, He also describes how he got control of the gun then and hit Garda Horkin on the head once with the butt of the gun. Um, And he had tried to strike him again, but he said the second time it it, it kind of glanced off his shoulder. Um, So as this struggle continued, Garda Horkin fell to the ground and Stephen Silver says that he then pulled away. He held the gun with both hands and he shot Garda Horkin about 10 times. And that's that um I mean we've heard from the pathologist that it's those injuries that caused Gerda Horkin's death.
0: So was he asked anything or was he cross-examined by the prosecution in any way about this about his his uh sequence of events of it? Um the prosecution
1: focused a lot of their cross-examination on his uh mental illness and how he presented in the Garda station following um the this following what happened. Uh with Garda Horkin. Um, in his interviews with the Gardaí, he said himself that he was ashamed of how he acted in those interviews. His, his behaviour, even by his own counsel, I think, described it as, you know, he used a lot of derogatory remarks towards the Gardaí who were interviewing him and even towards Garda Horkin. Um, at one point, he, he used various, you know, expletives and things when describing Garda Horkin. He, at one point, he called him a dirtbag. I won't use the other words that he might have used to describe him, but um He apologized for that. He said that he was very ashamed of his behavior now that he's seen it back on the DVDs. He said that he's never seen himself act like that before um, and that it is something, uh, it is a, a way that he would behave. Only when he is unwell, and he attributed that behaviour to his uh, mental illness, uh, bipolar disorder, is what he said. He mentioned that he had various diagnoses over the year, inclu- over the years, including schizoaffective disorder and bipolar disorder. Um, obviously, he hadn't been taking his medication. He had been hospitalised about eight or nine months previously. Um, on his release from that hospitalisation, he had stopped taking his medication within a week or two. So, um,
0: and of course, we should say the importance of all this is because he is on trial. For murder. He's denying murder, he's pleaded not guilty to murder, but he would plead guilty to manslaughter by, is it a reason of diminished responsibility?
1: That's exactly what it is. So we can describe what that is. Um, There was a a very good description given by, well, I mean, uh, uh, accurate description given by Dr. Brenda Wright, who's a a psychiatrist who was called by the defence, who examined Stephen Silver over three interviews. Uh, she also looked back on his records of 17 admissions. She looked at his, looked at those Garda interviews. She read statements from witnesses who saw how he was behaving around the time of the offence. She said that um, she diagnosed Stephen Silver with bipolar affective disorder. And she said that his mental capacity was diminished by the illness and therefore his responsibility for the act was diminished. Now, under the Criminal Law Insanity Act, um, Section 6 of that Act says that where a person is on trial for murder, and was suffering from a mental disorder which substantially reduced his responsibility, a jury shall find him guilty uh, not of murder but of manslaughter. So that's what the the, the um, defence is in this case. Not that he is not guilty of any offence but that he's guilty of the lesser offence of manslaughter and that's because his responsibility is diminished by his mental disorder.
0: And this is different to if somebody is found guilty by reason of insanity when they are absolutely um sent forward to the Central Mental Hospital and that's where their sort of, you know, their, their treatment rather than imprisonment happens and it's up to the director of the Central Mental Hospital when they are released. But this would be, should an individual charged in this way be found guilty of the manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility, would they necessarily go directly into the prison system?
1: Well... Stephen Silver went to the Central Mental Hospital uh, after um, this incident and he was admitted to the Central Mental Hospital and he was uh, treated treated as a, an acute patient there in other words he was at that point deemed to be suffering from a, a mental disorder but as time went on and as he took his medication, Dr. Wright said that his condition improved, normalised, stabilised, and he was released from there back into the ordinary prison population and has been in Mount Joy um, since April 2021, I think she said. So, And she's also monitored or looked at his prison records since then, and she says that, you know, they show that he has his condition has stabilised and his behaviour is considered normal at this point.
0: But key is that her evidence was at the time she believes that he was suffering from this bipolar, and he wasn't taking his medication.
1: Exactly, and it does seem to be a feature, according to Dr. Wright's evidence, that um, it is it, that his condition does stabilise and has, over the seventeen different admissions, has always stabilised after a period of taking his medication. And in this case, as well, it seems that he improved quite. A, a loss within weeks and after, you know, by April 2021 he was well enough to actually leave the Central Mental Hospital.
0: Now because the defence called Dr. Brenda Wright um, to give evidence on behalf of Stephen Silver, the state then gets to call a, another psychiatrist or psychologist to give evidence for them so they have called the state it called professor harry kennedy and what has he got to say he's still giving evidence i think
1: on. yeah so as you mentioned earlier on we're on day 19 he began his evidence yesterday and he will be continuing we expect he'll be continuing his evidence today but uh professor harry kennedy disagrees with dr wright um and he his, uh, he has attributed some of the behaviours that uh, were displayed by Mr Silver during his interviews that Dr Wright said were uh, evidence of a mental illness or abnormal thinking he has put down to personality rather than mental illness. Um, in particular, interview five, the final interview that Stephen Silver gave... Um, in which he does various things like put tissue paper up his nose, which he then puts in his mouth. Uh, he kind of stares at Gardaí. Um He whistles at times. He sings at times. Uh, he's kind of staring out the window, uh, I suppose not engaging with the Gardy. Dr. Wright said that this was really bizarre and unusual behaviour um, that she attributes to mental illness. Professor Kennedy said that there's no psychiatric um, explanation required for this uh, this behaviour, that this is just personality.
0: We're, we're into the defence argument, basically. The prosecution case is over as soon as Stephen, Stephen Silver took the stand. That was the start of the defence case. Professor Kennedy may finish his evidence today or into next week. Is there further evidence expected or is it likely that this trial is coming to its end now?
1: The defence may well call another couple of witnesses. They can obviously call as many as they want. Um, but once they do, once they complete their evidence, we'll go into closing speeches where the senior counsels for each side will tell the jury what, how they uh, view the evidence and how they see um the verdict that they believe the jury should find. The judge will have to give his charge to the jury, which can take quite a long time because he has to explain to the jury the law and how it applies to this case. And also he has to go back over the evidence uh, and give them a summary of the evidence that they have heard, which obviously can take quite a long time. And then it's over to the jury. It'll be up to them to come to their verdict.
0: And what just for people who don't understand that, because (laughs) there was in the past times when juries would, you know, When they went out, they would be kept in hotel accommodation. They'd be brought back to the courts. They would be literally gone for whatever period of time it took to reach a verdict. And it can take quite a number of days or it can take a few hours. It all depends. But what, what is the situation like now for the jury? What what will be expected of them?
1: Well, the jury have been coming to court every day. You know, they, they make their own way there. They're not sequestered. They're not, you know, put up in a hotel and kept away from social media and general, you know, media. They're uh, asked every day by the judge not to look at uh, media reports, not to consider media reports and not to speak to anyone outside of their own number about what they're hearing in court or about the case at all, uh, to ignore everything else essentially and just to focus on what they've heard in court, so they will as as is you know as, as they have been doing for the last few weeks. They'll arrive into court maybe at 10 o'clock or half 10, 11 o'clock, depending on what time we are starting at. They'll be there for as long as they're required. Usually the courts finish about 4, half 4 or 5 o'clock, and then they will go home to their normal lives. And then if they you know, haven't come to a verdict, they'll come back the next day. Mm. That's, that's the way it'll be for them until... Uh, until they've finished their duty, I suppose.
0: Okay. Well, look, um, we'll we'll maybe pop back into this case next week, go and, and see where it's at, and uh, certainly when the jury is out, we can we can revisit it. So, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from SundayWorld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini if you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Why not download the free Sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.